Maurice led his boys behind a stream of red army units down a forest path worn and widened by thousands of men. Most of the enlisted men were barefoot, their felt boots worn away. Even the officers' uniforms were tattered. Men, not horses, pushed or pulled wagons or dragged crates of ammunition behind them. After a half hour, the forest opened to a wide glade filled with the Red Army. Men collapsed into the tall grass, dropping their weapons on the ground without bothering to stack them. No fires burned. There was no food to eat. Morris led his unit to a clear spot near the edge of the forest. Stack your rifles, boys. They stacked them in a circle and arranged the parts of the anti-tank guns beside them. Then they collapsed like the rest. Think we're safe here? Horace asked. Safe as anywhere from Fritz, Yuri said. Are we safe from the Russians? Another private, Slauko, said in a low voice Maurice could barely hear. We could slip into the woods, hide until Fritz goes past us, then sneak back home. Quiet, Maurice said, hissing. The commissars hear everything. He looked over each shoulder, but didn't see Matvienko or any of the other political officers. For that matter, he couldn't spot another officer in the clearing. Where was the major on his worn-out nag? Slauko's eyes darted to every man in the unit before he slumped back into the grass. Maurice let out a breath he hadn't realized he'd been holding. Then he heard a rumble. He turned just in time to hear four men yell at once, HALT! All around the perimeter of the clearing, men wearing gray uniforms and holding submachine guns stepped out of the woods. They were captured. A captain stepped forward, pistol in hand. Two machine gun bearing corporals stepped ahead with him. Politruk, he called. Political officers. The Red Army men did not respond. Why did they want the commissars? Maurice wondered. He started to feel sick to his stomach. Politruk, the German captain called again. Step forward. Still, no one moved. The officer motioned with his gun, and three German soldiers stepped forward and walked among the Red Army men. One by one, they grabbed political officers, identifiable by the red stars on their uniforms, and lined them up in front of their captain. When the German soldiers could not find any more commissars, they saluted their commander and stood to one side. Six young officers, each wearing the insignia of the political wing on their collars, stood before the German captain. Maurice did not see Matvienko among them. Kneel, the captain said to the commissars. They did not understand German. They only looked at one another. Maurice felt his throat go dry. German soldiers stepped forward and pushed the commissars to their knees. The officer strutted back and forth, as if he were inspecting them. At the end of the line, he looked at his own men and said, in German, they're pathetic. He stepped behind the last commissar, raised his gun to the man's head and pulled the trigger. The sound of the gunshot hit Maurice like a slap in the face. Even after all the death he had seen since Kiev, he shook when he saw the commissar's body fall to the ground. The German officer stepped behind the line of commissars and shot them one by one. When six bodies lay on the ground, he holstered his weapon and looked up at a sergeant major. March them to Kharkiv. The Germans rode in armored cars, the officers on horses, but the Soviet soldiers marched or limped along the cratered road to Kharkiv. 
More German soldiers, some with submachine guns, some with rifles, lined the street in the city. No one thought of escaping. They walked into a big square room made of fitted stones in the 17th century fortress in the middle of the city. No beds, no cots, no bunks. The prisoners collapsed to sleep on the bare floor. The smell would have made Maurice wretch if he had eaten anything in the past 12 hours. He looked at his men and saw nothing but despair. Put all our gear together here, Maurice said. We'll sleep in a circle, heads together, around our things. That way, no one will be able to steal it when we're asleep. The boys piled what little the Germans had let them keep. Gloves, a few changes of underwear, odd personal things. Then arranged themselves around them like the spokes of a wheel. Maurice added his own torn pack, but kept his chenille, his greatcoat, as a blanket. His one treasure, his Dominion of Canada birth certificate, was in an inner pocket next to his skin. He lay awake, staring up into pitch blackness. He had never felt so afraid of dying before, not even when the shells were exploding overhead and the panzers were racing across streams and tearing up grain fields before his eyes. He felt sure if he closed his eyes, he would never open them again. Unwelcome sleep came, blessing him with a short oblivion. The Germans woke them before dawn, not with bugles, but with SS soldiers carrying submachine guns. They strode across the stone room, screaming, Rouse! Rouse! Out! Get off your arses, you animals! They staggered out without any belongings. A German private gave each man a small piece of bread. They lined up for a cup of water each, and then they were each given a hammer, pick, or barrow, and marched out of the gate for a day of breaking rocks. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. And welcome to a new year for the podcast, 2023. This is episode 16, Life During Wartime. I'm Scott Burry, recording today in the usual Redbeard studio on the traditional territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people in Canada. And if I sound a little different today, a little off, it's because I'm fighting the end. I hope it's the end of a wicked head cold. So my apologies for that. I'm drinking a lot of water. And uh, if anyone out there has some interesting or proven effective remedies, I'd love to hear about them. Send me an email or a note. Uh, All the information comes at the end of the podcast. The opening section was a reading from my book, Army of Worn Souls. It's the true story of my father-in-law, Maurice Burry, a Canadian who was drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time for the German invasion. Last episode, which went live before Christmas, 
I promised that this episode would look at what things were like for the people who lived in the lands that Nazi Germany conquered from the USSR. And that's exactly what we'll do. So, first, where we are now. The narrative of the Eastern Front podcast has brought us up to late November 1941, early December. At this point, Nazi Germany has reached close to its farthest extent in the war. It has already taken the rest of Poland that it didn't take in 1939, so the portion that the USSR had taken, all of Belarus, also known as Belarusia in those times, the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. They had surrounded Leningrad, now known as St. Petersburg, had gotten within kilometers of the center of Moscow itself. They had also conquered pretty much all of Ukraine and almost all of the Crimean Peninsula. The last um, narrative episodes talked about the siege of Sevastopol, so that was just about the only holdout on that peninsula in the Black Sea. Now, once the Germans had conquered or taken an area, they had to control it. And they couldn't control it with the same people that had conquered it. Those had to move further to um, continue pushing the front lines. So the Germans had a number of different models of administration for their occupied territories in Eastern Europe. First and smallest was territory assigned to or granted to Germany's allies and puppets. In the east, for example, Romania gained the territory of Bessarabia, the area east of the Prut River up to the Dniester along the Black Sea coast. This had been annexed by the USSR in 1940 following the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. In 1941, Romania also gained the currently controversial area called Transnistria, literally the land beyond the Dniester. That's the area between the Dniester and Buk rivers, including the city of Odessa, which itself held out against German and Romanian forces from August 5th to October 16, 1941, even while the invaders swept farther east, past Crimea, almost to the Don River. This area, Bessarabia and Transistria, was administered by Romania, which attempted Romanianization until the Soviets returned. But that's for another episode. The second type of model was applied to most of the territory of Poland, which was simply incorporated as a number of districts into the German Reich, as Lebensraum, living space for ethnic Germans. This included the former Polish corridor that separated East Prussia from the rest of Germany before 1939, and the formerly free city, so-called, of Danzig, or Gdansk. Far more significant was the General Gouvernement, or General Governorate, imposed on Eastern Poland and Western Ukraine. Originally, the General Governorate included part of Poland that the Germans occupied under the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939 after their uh, invasion, which was the beginning, officially, of the Second World War. This area encompassed uh, ethnic Poles and Ukrainians. Following Operation Barbarossa in 1941, the area east of there, that is, the largely Ukrainian-populated part of Poland that had been seized by the USSR in 1939, 
some 50,000 square kilometers with a population of nearly 12 million, was added to the general government. This brought it up to 145,000 square kilometers with a total population of 18 million people. From 1939 to 1945, it was governed by General Governor Hans Frank. The largest area conquered in the east was what the Germans called the Reichskommissariats. Reichskommissariat Ostland comprised the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and Western Belarus, and Reichskommissariat Ukraine. The rest of the eastern territories conquered by Germany until, well, roughly halfway through 1943, uh, were under direct military control because the front lines kept moving and this was where the fighting was happening. One thing to remember about all these territories is that they were all occupied four years before Barbarossa by foreign powers. True national government was a recent thing in all these areas, and it was a very brief thing for Ukraine, less than two years. So, let's uh, zoom in a bit, take a look at the general government. Initially, as I said, initially established in occupied Poland in October 1939, with its headquarters in Krakow. It was a colonial entity rather than an occupation, per se. The idea was to eliminate the institutions of the Polish state and society and replace them with German ones. There were no civil courts, only military, in this area. Governor General or General Governor Hans Frank had complete personal control, autocracy. He was appointed by and answerable only to Adolf Hitler. The goal in this area was to replace the local population with German colonists and also to favor the ethnic Germans who were already living there, eventually to incorporate it into the German Reich. The plan was to establish two specific areas within the governorate, the Gottengau, or province of the Goths, and the Vandalengau, or province of the Vandals. So you can see the dedication to the Nazi mythology here. The problem was that there were never enough Germans, either ethnically and already established in the area, or brought in, moved in as colonists, to replace all the Poles or the Ukrainians. So uh, the local population had to be uh, eliminated through overwork, starvation, and outright murder. The first step was to reduce the Poles and Ukrainians in the area to serfs. This also involved uh, a stated policy of killing Poles, murdering the intelligentsia, the artists, politicians, and other leaders. In that weird, brief time from 1939 to 1941, when the Soviets were nominally allied under the, uh, the non-aggression pact with Germany, the, so the Soviets actually cooperated. They helped in this... Uh, transformation of the General Gouvernement area by uh, deporting Poles, thousands, tens of thousands of them, particularly the civil leaders, to Siberia. 
in the local area, the Germans initially had a pretense of um, local control of, by the uh, in, uh, native inhabitants or the not really indigenous, but the people who lived there originally, the Poles and Ukrainians, leaving them in charge of very much local, less important administrative functions. All real authority, including police, were in German hands. Most of the Polish police officers were arrested and murdered, replaced by Germans. Polish higher education institutions were closed, um, but the Germans also uh, used a the old divide-and-conquer approach. So as a result, while they brutally suppressed Polish culture and institutions, they were more lax with the Ukrainians. As a result, a lot of Ukrainian intelligentsia flowed in to the area from the Soviet territory. Ukrainian cultural organizations sprang up after having been suppressed by Poland for the uh, for many years. There were the Rydneshkola, or basically Ukrainian language schools, Prashvita, the cultural society, the overarching Ukrainian organization called the Ukrainian Central Committee, based in Krakow, was tolerated and recognized by the German authorities. Their role was uh, relief and humanitarian work for um, refugees and uh, and poor poor Ukrainian people in the area. A lot of Ukrainian language publishing sprang up in these this brief period. A lot of Ukrainian newspapers, for example, which also had been suppressed by the Polish government before 1939. Uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Catholic Church, who were, were independent of Moscow, reopened. Two new bishops were appointed in this period, and 40 churches that the Polish government had seized in the interwar years before 1939 were returned to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So there was a total of 140 new Ukrainian Orthodox parishes opened during the war in the General Gouvernement area. So after 1941, after the uh, beginning of the war between Germany and the Soviet Union, the General Gouvernement area was enlarged. It added territory of Galicia, or in Ukrainian, Halicina, which had been, until 1941, occupied the by the USSR. Now, the Soviets tried to uh, evacuate the population from there, but that just wasn't possible because of the speed at which Barbarossa happened. And also because Ukrainians, especially in the West, which had not been under Soviet control for a very long, didn't want to evacuate to the USSR for good reasons that are being um, underlined today. So that's the General Gouvernement, a relatively smaller area compared to the Rex Commissariats. These were the largest in terms of territory and population. So there were two Rex Commissariats. Rex Commissariat Ostland, comprising the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and most of Belarusia and Rex Commissariat Ukraine, which was, as it sounds like, most of Ukraine that was under German control, up to uh, roughly Mykolaiv in the east, so just east of the 
not just east, but some area uh, east of the Dnipro River. So first, let's look at Rijkscommissariat Ostland. It was uh, administered by Henrik Losse, the Rijkscommissar, also answering only to Hitler. But it was administratively under the Reich's Ministry for the Occupied Eastern Territories, led by Minister Alfred Rosenberg. And it was further divided into its constituent national territories, Estland, roughly Estonia, whose borders had been pushed farther east, Lettland, roughly Latvia, similarly enlarged, and Litauen, or Lithuania, which was smaller than Lithuania is today. And then the area of uh, Belarusia, as part of Estland, was called Weisutinian, or White Ruthenia. Ruthenia is one of those uh, previous names for the Belarusian and uh, Ukrainian peoples. Uh, the headquarters or the uh, ca administrative capital of Ostland was uh, Minsk, which is now in uh, Belarus, and the general commissar was Wilhelm Kuba from 1941 to 1943, when he was assassinated by Soviet partisans. Um, and then it was uh, the the commissariat passed to Kurt von Gottberg, who was a, an SS Obergruppenführer or um, senior uh, general uh, in the SS. Now, the goal of the, or the purpose of establishing the Reich's commissariat was to eliminate first the Jewish population, turn the area into Lebensraum for ethnic Germans, make the area into a German protectorate. <laughs> Pardon me. That's the cold I told you about. Anyway, uh, yes, the area was to be turned into a German protectorate, eventually merged into the Germany itself. According to uh, Nazi racial theory, the Baltic people, these were the, again, the uh, Estonians and Latvians primarily, were sufficiently European, according to their standards, after 700 years of rule by Swedish, Danish, and German regimes. However, the Belarusians, or White Ruthenians, were, quote, little and weak peasant people, end quote, inferior, in other words, yet harmless, therefore suited best for exploitation. During the occupation, Nazi authorities also gave uh, land in Ostland to ethnic Germans and resettled some ethnic Germans from Romania and the Netherlands in this uh, Baltic area. Reich's Commissariat Ukraine was the largest of the eastern occupied territories, both in terms of area and population. It was up to 340,000 square kilometers at its greatest extent, from Volhynia in the west, an area uh, of Lutsk in western Ukraine, to the left bank or eastern bank of the Dnipro River, as I said, just uh, maybe 100 kilometers uh, east of the river. This zone also included parts of southern Belarusia, or Belarus, including Polisia, an area north of the Pripyat River, and the city of Brest-Litovsk and the towns of Pinsk and Mazir, which are now in Belarus. According to historian Paul Magoski, Crimea was nominally part of the Reichs Commissariat, 
but effectively under military administration. That's because there was still a lot of fighting going on there. Reich's Commissariat's Ukraine's administrative center was the city of Rivni, a transportation hub in the northwest of the country. The Reich's Commissar was Eric Koch, a career bureaucrat and complete monster, frankly. He had previously been a Goliter, or area administrator, in East Prussia, then in Bielostok. And on September 1st, 1941, he was appointed Reichskommissar of Ukraine, with control of the Gestapo and the uniformed police. So that's the organization. But what was daily life like in the occupied territories? Two words, terrifying and brutal. So let's take a break. When we come back, we'll take a closer look into the Nazis' plans and their overall conception for the occupied territories and the reality for the people who live there. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Beyond Barbarossa. Now, let's take that deeper dive into looking at what it was like to live under German occupation in the East. First, the General Gouvernement. As I said before, the General Governorate, such as uh, Galicia. There, the um, German occupation under Governor General Hans Frank was somewhat gentler than in the Reichskommissariats. Ukrainian cultural organizations, including schools, were allowed to operate. Ukrainian publications proliferated, under strict German censorship, of course. Still, having the wrong newspaper under your arm could get you shot. Ukrainian churches opened and continued to function throughout this time in the general government. But this um, tolerance was a thin facade. In the wake of German motorized and infantry units uh, who swept through during Operation Barbarossa came the extermination squads, the Einsatzgruppen. That was how it translated, extermination squads. Immediately, they began rounding up and murdering anyone they decided was undesirable. This included communists, intellectuals, Ukrainian nationalists, and, of course, Jews. Between June 30th and July 7th, so this is, what, the first week of the invasion? These extermination squads murdered more than 4,000 Jews, sometimes with the assistance of local auxiliaries. In July and August, 24,000 Jews were killed in pogroms in Galicia and Western Volhynia. These are the Ukrainian areas in the General Governorate. After the initial invasion, the Nazis became more systematic. So up to this point, these killings were pretty random, uh, chaotic. They would just roll into a village or a town, uh, grab anyone they thought who looked Jewish or might be Jewish or might be an intellectual or anyone who just 
bothered them in some way and shot them. But they, these were the, the Nazis and they had to be systematic. So first step was to round up and concentrate all the Jews into ghettos, specified areas within towns and cities. From there, they could be more efficiently shipped like cattle to concentration camps such as Tabrinka, Majdanek, or Auschwitz. Or often, especially at the beginning of the occupation, just taken to the outskirts of the town or city and shot, and their bodies dumped into pits. The most notorious such event happened in Babinyar outside Kiev on September 29th to 30th, one week after the city fell to the Nazis. Some 34,000 Jews, most of the Jewish population of the city, were murdered, their bodies dumped like garbage into the ravine of Babinyar or Babiyar. This was the biggest mass murder up to that point. It was surpassed a few weeks later in Odessa when German and Romanian troops killed over 50,000 Jewish people and others. While the Germans exploited anti-Semitic feelings and long-held grudges in their conquered territories, this is that divide-and-conquer, tried-and-true policy, many Ukrainians, Poles and Balts, risked their own lives to hide and protect Jewish people. The Ukrainian Orthodox Metropolitan of Galicia, Andrei Shepitsky, hid 165 Jewish people, mostly children, in monasteries and churches. He also wrote a letter in early 1942 to Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, the guy who was in charge of this systematic murder. The letter protested the brutality of the massacres and also the fact that Ukrainian police auxiliaries were being forced to murder Jewish people. Now, that's, that was the General Gouvernement, the General Governorate a relatively smaller area. In the north, Reich's Commissariat Ostland, the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Reich's Commissariat Ostland, in other words. So, just going to back up a little bit for some background. It's unfair to always lump these three countries together, but they did share a number of commonalities. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, after all, declared Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, as well as Finland, in the, uh, so the Soviet sphere of influence. This treaty of non-aggression, the secret parts of it, also um, guaranteed that Germany would not interfere when the USSR occupied Bessarabia, which was then part of Romania. In 1939, then, after the fall of Poland, the Nazis moved some 50,000 ethnic Germans out of Estonia and Latvia and gave them land in Poland. Meanwhile, the USSR forced mutual assistance, so-called pacts, on Estonia, Latvia, and uh, Lithuania. In Estonia and Latvia, they stationed 25,000 troops each and established military bases on their soil. The Soviet Navy began a complete naval blockade around Estonia in 1940. In Lithuania, it was a slightly different, uh, so backing up a little bit more, in March 1939, so six months before the invasion of Poland, Germany delivered Lithuania an ultimatum. Give up the city of Klaipeda, 
which is now called Memel, or face war. Lithuania had no choice but to give in. Then, seven or eight months later, after the fourth partition of Poland in October 1939, the Soviet Union granted uh, the city of Vilnius, which had been taken from Poland, to Lithuania in returning for signing its own mutual assistance treaty. Then, in 1940, after the winter war between USSR and Finland, there is a bonus episode coming soon, I promise. Uh, the Lithuanians were also forced to accept uh, a Red Army base with 20,000 troops. In June uh, 1940, uh, all pretenses were dropped. The, the Red Army occupied all the Baltic states, whilst the world's attention was focused on the fall of Paris to Hitler's Germany. Two units of the Estonian Defense Forces resisted this occupation for a number of hours. Two men were killed, but eventually they had to yeah, surrender. There was just no choice. So on July 21st, the uh, Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic was proclaimed as part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, followed by the Latvian Socialist Republic on August 5th and the Estonian Soviet Socialist Republic on August 6th, 1940. Pretty quickly began arrests, murders, sorry, executions of political, military, and intelligentsia opponents. Many more were deported to Siberia or other gulags in the USSR. In Estonia, more than 8,000 people including leading politicians and military officers, were arrested. Of those, 2,200 were executed, almost on the spot. The rest were moved to gulags in Russia. Very few returned. In uh, 1941, one week before the Nazi invasion, 10,000 more Estonians were deported to Siberia, and 32,000 were forced into labor battalions, that is, slavery after the invasion on June 22nd. 40% of these would die within the first year, mostly of hunger, cold, and overwork. In Latvia, at least 34,250 were deported to Siberia in 1940, or just killed outright. 40% of the exiles died in Siberia. In Lithuania, 12,000 people were arrested immediately after the uh, supposed uh, unification with the USSR. In 1940, before Operation Barbarossa, another 17,000 were deported to Siberia. In fact, the NKPD, the security police, massacred many of these people, uh, up to 40% of them, in Lithuania on their way to this supposed um, imprisonment. In all, in the Baltic states, the communist system imposed replacement of the national currency with the ruble, confiscation and nationalization of private property and industry, and imposition of a Soviet-friendly government. Upon the invasion, many people in the Baltic states, as well as in Ukraine, welcomed the 
incoming invading Germans as liberators from Soviet communist rule. In Lithuania and Latvia, Parson groups rose up against the communists, helping the Nazi invaders. On the morning of the invasion, June 22, 1941, the Lithuanian Activist Front, or LAF, formed to resist the Soviet occupation. They took control of much of the capital at the time, Kaunas, the presidential palace, the post office, telephone, telegraph, radio stations, and more. On the morning of June 23rd, so the second day of the invasion, Leonis Propulenis, leader of the LAF, read a declaration of Lithuanian independence over local radios. The LAF took Red Army prisoners, but the, uh, the group was quickly disillusioned, as were all the Lithuanian uh, nationalists. Within a week, the Germans controlled all of Lithuania, and the Red Army was completely destroyed there. The Germans then completely disarmed the LAF insurgents who had helped them, and put them in their place. They began punitive raids against Lithuanians, executing groups of 20 men and boys. Estonia was the last of the Baltic states that the Germans reached. As a result, the scorched earth policy the Soviets declared hurt most in northern Estonia, where the Soviet destruction battalions burned farms and villages. In areas closer to the uh, original borders, there just wasn't time to do this. The Estonian resistance organization was called the Forest Brothers, and it soon spread to Latvia and Lithuanian members. And they fought a guerrilla war in the Baltics through the Second World War against both Nazi and communist occupiers. And this uh, guerrilla war persisted beyond the Second World War into the early 1950s. Also in Estonia, the Finnish military funded and trained Estonian volunteers in the Erna Long Range Reconnaissance Group. The objective was to sneak behind Soviet lines, provide intelligence for the Finnish army, which was fighting in Karelia against the Red Army. But the uh, Erna group mostly worked to help civilians escape by fighting the NKVD destruction battalions. Meanwhile, throughout the Baltics, the Einsatzgruppen extermination squads were very active. Again, their first targets were the Jews, often with the uh, help of local groups, such as police forces, who all too often harbored anti-Semitic views. In Latvia, 30,000 Jewish people were shot in autumn 1941, and then, soon after, Another 30,000 from Riga were killed in the Rumbola Forest in November and December. More than 75,000 Latvian Jews were killed during Nazi occupation. By December 1st, 1941, more than 95% of all Lithuanian Jewish population, more than 120,000 people were murdered at Sysak Panaria. Estonia became kind of a, a Nazi way station for its, um, its genocide. Its pre-war po Jewish population was a, probably around 4,000 in total, and the Soviets deported 500 to Siberia, along with other Estonians, 
during their occupation from 1940. So when the Nazis took over Estonia, and it was simpler for them to round up the remaining Jewish people, and they began transporting Jews from other areas that they had conquered into the Baltic countries, where the plan was to concentrate them there and murder them there. So while there were 4,000 Jewish people in Estonia before the war, the Nazis killed more than 10,000 Jewish people in that country alone. There was significant collaboration uh, with this by the local populations. This was partly prompted by opposition to communism. Um, another of younger men joined the uh, Waffen-SS divisions. There was a Latvian division. Uh, there was also a Latvian rifle division formed by the Red Army in 1944. So um, there were uh, partisans, uh, believers, committed men on both sides. Here's the irony, though. While young men from Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia are, uh, are joining the, the Nazis, the, the German general plan Ost or East was to remove 50% of the Baltic population to make room for ethnic German colonists. Um, remove, yeah, that means kill. And the remaining people would be worked and starved to death. The occupying Nazis seized Jewish-owned properties in the Baltics and key industries and appointed private German industrial corporations to manage these industries. These included the Hermann Goering workshops, Mannesmann, IG Farben, and Siemens. Daimler, Benz, and Vomag took over heavy workshops in Riga and in Kiev. According to Nazi records, the Reich government made a net profit of 753.6 million Reichsmarks up to 1944. Not bad for stealing property, is it? Nazi rule in Lithuania also was particularly harsh. Rather than return property confiscated by the communists to their owners, as some uh, local people had supposed would happen, the Nazis kept it for themselves. They also forced some Lithuanian people to fight in uh, their units and mostly used other Lithuanians as forced labor, slaves. Of the Jewish population of Ostland, thousands fled for Russia ahead of the Nazis. Still, in total, in, these, in this part of the, in the Reichskommissariat Ost, the Nazis killed over a quarter million Jewish people out of a pre-war population of just over 300,000. More than 90% of the Jewish population of Lithuania were murdered, the highest proportion of any country that suffered in the Holocaust. Partisan activity by underground resistors began pretty quickly. Some smart partisans were sponsored and commanded by Moscow, but many independent fighting units sprang up to fight for it to struggle for an independent Lithuania, or Latvia, or Estonia. Uh, there was no Lithuanian unit of the Waffen-SS, um, but there were units in the Waffen-SS from Estonia, Latvia, and Ukraine. The Lithuanian Territorial Defense Force was originally supported by the Nazi occupiers to resist uh, Soviet and Polish partisans, but when this group reached over 19,000 members, the Germans became alarmed and arrested the leaders. 
in Reich's Commissariat Ukraine. It's become a cliche how villages and in Ukraine and Belarus greeted the invading Germans with traditional gifts of bread and salt, welcoming them as liberators from the Soviets. It's also understandable. Ukraine had been fighting for its independence for centuries, had tasted it briefly after the First World War. But after the Russian Civil War ended, the Soviet Union forced Ukraine under its control as the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Communist oppression was felt particularly hard there. The Kulaks, independent farmers, were destroyed as a class, their lands confiscated and collectivized. Under Stalin, Ukrainian identity was pretty much outlawed, and a policy of Russification became law. Then came the Holodomor in 1932 to 1933, an artificial famine created when Soviet authorities confiscated virtually all the grain and other food produced in Ukraine and distributed it elsewhere, notably in Russia. Also, they sold a lot on the world market to raise cash. There's an excellent podcast with all the details on a, uh, called Ukraine Without Hype. I'll put a link in the show notes. As a result of this history and Nazi propaganda, Ukrainians hoped the invasion would lead to their independence. But as often happens with these things, the leading Ukrainian sovereignty movement, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or OUN, was fracturing uh, in 1941. The two main factions were the Melnikites under Andriy Melnik and the Banderites, led by Stepan Bandera. After 1939, the Germans had tolerated the OUN in the general governorate. Starting in 1940, the Germans began training Ukrainians to be police units in the East. Two units of Banderites, so this is the larger section, faction of the OUN, uh, became military units, codenamed Nachigal and Roland. These marched with the Vatabacht into Ukraine in 1941, hoping to help liberate their country from communism. Another group of Banderites, uh, led by a Yaroslav Stetsko, on June 30th, 1941, declared a sovereign Ukraine based in Lviv. Well, the Germans didn't really like this idea too much. They promptly arrested the nascent Ukrainian government, including Bandera and Stetsko, sending them to prisons in Germany. They demobilized the Nachigali Roland units and sent them back to Poland for retraining. They really later reorganized them to fight Soviet partisans in Belarus. But by the end of 1942, these units were completely disbanded and their officers jailed. Even with their leaders jailed and imprisoned, or just outright murdered, the majority of the people of Ukraine resisted the occupation. At first, unorganized groups, just villagers or people from this country and the towns, struck at German units who had burned their farms and villages. Partisan groups sprang up. Eventually, the members of the OUN, the Ukrainian Nationalist Group, formed the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, better known as UPA, its acronym in Ukrainian from Ukrainska 
Povstanska Armia. There was also the Ukrainian People's Revolutionary Army, which sprang up a little bit later. In Reich's Commissariat Ukraine, things were an order of magnitude more brutal than in the general governorate. Reich's Commissar Koch's first act was to close local Ukrainian language schools. He said, quote, Ukraine children need no schools. What they'll have to learn will be taught them by their German masters, end quote. He also said, quote, If I meet a Ukrainian worthy of being seated at my table, I must have him shot, end quote. Ukrainians were, at best, slated to be slave laborers. In 1942 alone, the Reich ordered Koch and Losi, the two Reich's commissars, to supply 380,000 farm workers and 247,000 industrial workers for German needs. In other words, more slave laborers in the farms and factories in Germany. Koch boasted in his New Year's Day message of 1943 how he had, quote, recruited, end quote, 710,000 workers that is, slaves, in Ukraine alone. The occupation of Reich's Commissariat Ukraine led to the deaths of up to 1.6 million Jewish people in Ukraine and uh, 3 to 4 million non-Jewish Ukrainians as well by the end of the war through disease, starvation, imprisonment, torture, and, yeah, just outright murder. That's the statistics. But I'm going to uh, illustrate the reality, bring it home. And to do that, I'm going to do another reading from another book I wrote called Under the Nazi Heel. Again, it's the recollections of a man who was there, my father-in-law, Maurice Burry, who in 1942 lived in Galicia, near Ternopil, and was active in the underground resistance to the occupation. Chapter 8 Slavka Koritsa, Nastasiu, Ukraine, April 1942. Maurice arrived at the market to find the village buzzing. It was the first warm day of spring, and the sunshine seemed to put the villagers into a cheerful mood. They attacked the armory last night, people kept saying, as they set up their stalls or picked over onions and carrots. Who did? Maurice asked as he started to unload crates of new beets. People would lean closer and whisper harshly, Upa, of course, brazen, fearless, said someone else. No good will come of this. The Germans won't let this go, said a third. Six German soldiers killed, the building destroyed, and the insurgents got away with wagon loads of guns, bombs, and ammunition, said a young blonde man who could not help looking pleased. Why didn't I know about this, Maurice wondered but he could not say that aloud. The Germans did not take long to respond. Before noon, a staff car with red and black swastika flags flapping roared into the square, followed by a truck, its back covered with cloth. They screeched to a halt in the middle of the square, and soldiers holding submachine guns jumped down. Two reached into the back of the truck and pulled out men wearing civilian clothes. Their hands were tied together and most fell as they got out of the truck. The soldiers kicked them and hit them with the butts of their rifles until they stood in a rough line. Maurice recognized the young men 
all from Nastasio or farms close by. His breath caught when he saw a young man with tousled brown hair and bright blue eyes, Slavko Koritsa, his cousin, who had danced with his sister on New Year's Eve. The soldiers shoved the prisoners toward the center of the square as a young officer got out of the staff car. Very erect, his uniform perfectly cleaned and pressed to razor sharpness, he strode, erect and calm, toward the prisoners. The market went silent. The April breeze stopped. The villagers stood, riveted in the bright sunshine. Are these the suspects from last night's attack? The officer asked in German, in a clear voice that everyone in the market could hear. Yes, Hauptmann, a sergeant responded. The captain walked up and down the line of bound men, looking at each one critically. Which one of you is leader, he demanded. Walked to the end of the line, turned and walked back. Which one gave the orders, he repeated. No one answered. The captain walked back down the line, peering at each prisoner in turn. No one else made a sound. The entire market was riveted by the display. Tell me which of you is in charge. He will be punished. The rest of you will go free. On my honor as a German officer. Still, no one spoke. The prisoners looked at the ground, knowing what was about to happen. Someone in the crowd spoke up. They're only boys, for God's sake. Let the youngest ones go. Maurice turned to see who it was, an older woman with a kerchief on her head, Anna Kovalchuk, who lived alone. Her husband and son had been killed when the Germans swept through Ukraine. An officer nodded once and a soldier stepped up to Anna and clubbed her head with his rifle butt. She fell without making a sound, and the rest of the crowd gasped as one. The officer turned to face the crowd. These men attacked the German army last night, a cowardly ambush on the armory. They killed six of my men, betraying the Nazi party that liberated your country from communism. We cannot and will not tolerate this treason. One more time, he said to the prisoners. Which of you is in charge? Give him up, and the rest will go free. He waited for several seconds. The prisoners only looked at the ground. Very well, he said. He walked to one end of the line and started counting off the prisoners. Ein, zwei, drei. Maurice felt sick to his stomach. No, don't let him do it, he thought. When the officer reached ten, he was standing in front of Slauko. Calmly, the officer drew his Luger sidearm from its shiny leather holster. Maurice could see Slavko shaking. His own hands shook too. The officer pressed the barrel of his pistol against Slavko's head and squeezed the trigger. A pathetic pop echoed across the square. Slavko's body dropped like empty rags. A woman cried out. Men moaned, and Maurice realized he was one of them. He felt tears on his cheeks. Put the rest in the lockup, the officer said. Tie the body to a post in the square. Let it be a reminder to the people about what happens to traitors to the Third Reich. <sighs> yeah, I I know I wrote that, but uh, that's still tough for me to to go over again. So I think that's a a good place to to take a break and uh, and bring this episode to a conclusion. Thank you for listening. Join me again in two weeks for the next episode, which, well, it's not really possible to be uh, upbeat about this subject, but um, not maybe as depressing as I bring in 
another guest. And this one is uh, is going to be uh, more entertaining for you. I hope it's, uh, actually I'm confident about this, it's Ray Harris from the History of World War II podcast. That's in two weeks from today. And it's, uh, well, we've done the episode, we've done the recording, so I'm, I know you'll like it. So for now, uh, so long. Thank you again for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of everything that went on, uh, take a look at the uh, the podcast episode notes or see the maps and the photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and just click on the podcast button in the banner. I also want to thank again all who have supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, research, and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode, please consider following Bar Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate, I'd love a rating, whatever you feel on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen to this. These really help spread the word to others interested in the history of the Second World War and history in general. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at writtenword.ca, contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Or if you just have anything else to say, any comments or ideas or suggestions, let me know. The original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. As always, I'm Scott Burry. Until next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>